Blessings of the Triple Gem, Teruan Saranai. Today we will be examining the Sila Sutta. This is Sangyutta Nikaya, Chapter 46, Discourse Number 3. And the Buddha's instructions on how to develop the seven factors of enlightenment. In Pali, this is Satabhojanga. And this is part of the supramundane noble dhamma taught by the Buddha. Let's begin by paying homage to the Triple Gem. We can bow our heads and Anjali. Homage to the Buddha. Homage to the Dhamma. Homage to the Noble Sangha. We are grateful to the Buddha and the Noble Ones for teaching us this Noble Dhamma. And we strive to be suvicha, easy to instruct, so we can uplift our minds to understand this Noble Dhamma. In today's Dhamma session, we're going to examine how to progressively develop the seven factors of enlightenment. There are different stages to the development of the Bhojangas. And as we learn to develop them, more specifically through the Bhojanga Sangyutta, our level of skill and aptitude with regard to them will increase and also expand. And our inclination towards wholesome states of mind as well. And our penetration of the Noble Dhamma will also deepen. As a result, the magnitude of the Buddha's knowledges will also be better understood. Now, if you've developed some of the sutta meditations on this channel, following the Buddha's sequence of instructions, so for example, painful practice with slow realization or the Vamika Sutta, things like that, then you will have activated the Bhojangas already, though we haven't explicitly mentioned it. The reason they get activated is because we follow the Buddha's instructions outlined in the discourses. These wisdom or insight pathways that we meditate on or develop usually get us to establish right view, and this develops the other path factors. Right mindfulness, so establishing the four establishments of mindfulness, is a key component of that. The fruit of our effort is noble right concentration. So in the process of following our sutta meditations, we activate the bhojangas. However, the strength of them may not be as focused or optimal. So for today's session, we will examine the Sila Sutta because it is one of the teachings that shows a very clear progressive pathway for developing the seven factors of enlightenment. And with the Buddha's instruction showing how each factor of enlightenment in the sequence becomes the condition for the next one until all factors have been activated and can be further developed. So the seven factors of enlightenment in sequence are enlightenment factor of mindfulness, so sati sampojanga, enlightenment factor of investigation of dhamma, dhamma vichaya sambojanga, enlightenment factor of energy, viriya sambojanga, enlightenment factor of rapture, piti sambojanga, enlightenment factor of tranquility, pasadi sambojanga, enlightenment factor of concentration, samadhi sambojanga. Enlightenment factor of equanimity, Upeka Sambhojanga. The prerequisite for learning to develop our mind is to be easy to instruct and to diligently follow the Buddha's instructions or those of the noble arahants. If we oppose what the Buddha is teaching us, if we question everything <clears throat> without even practicing the instructions as they've been given or doing them out of sequence or making up our own steps, then we sabotage ourselves and we can't develop them properly and we can't make progress as a result. So it's very important to be easy to instruct. So bear that in mind. Now, in this session, we will 
start with how to get the best out of this session, so our usual tips and reminders. We will also look at an overview of the Sila Sutta. Then we'll look at what nourishes the Bhujangas. After that, we'll deep dive into how to arouse and develop each Bhujanga. Then, after all that, we'll summarize the progressive development of the Bhujangas. And then we'll look at the fruit and benefits of cultivating Bhujangas in this way. So something that the Buddha says right at the end of the sutta. And then we'll share the merit and the blessings at the end of our session. So let's look at how to get the best out of this session. So the first thing is to keep an open mind. Be open to the Buddha's words in this discourse. Hear them fresh with eager ears and also the instructions for today's meditation. Then be okay with not understanding everything. The reason I usually say this is because often we become impatient or get affected when we can't understand certain dhammas. But whatever you need to understand and are able to practice in this session may be what is needed right now. So the best will uh, be, be that scenario and then the rest will come later. Some parts of the Dhamma may help you to simply link up with other Dhammas that we've been learning and developing. So that can also be quite useful. And remember that we're all learners. We're here to lean on each other, to make effort towards developing the noble path. And we're walking this path together. And apply yourself to the meditation. Really give yourself the opportunity to wisely contemplate the Dhamma during this session. And also use your own examples to connect with the Dhamma. The Buddha's teaching is a wisdom pathway, so we see Dhamma directly through applying our own examples and gaining that direct insight. So when we see the Dhamma, it's said that we see Buddha. And so when we see Buddha, we see the Dhamma. And lastly, have good wishes for everyone. Good wishes, kind thoughts, gratitude to anyone who has helped on the spiritual path up to this point. Let's get a quick bird's eye view of the Sila Sutta architecture. There's three main parts. The first part is the Buddha's opening statement that it's helpful to associate with perfected ones, arahants, because one hears the Dhamma from them and is encouraged to dwell withdrawn. Then part two is where the Buddha gives instructions on the progressive development of each of the seven factors of enlightenment and he demonstrates how they are connected and how they can arise. And then the third part is when these seven factors of enlightenment have been developed and cultivated in this way, then seven fruits and benefits may be expected. So before we launch straight into the Buddha's teaching in this Sila Sutta, it's useful to look at what nourishes the factors of enlightenment. This time we'll be looking at the Kundalia Sutta, so Sangyutanikaya, chapter 46, discourse number six. So it's from the Bojanga Sangyutta. And this is where the Buddha taught the wanderer Kundalia, the insight pathway that leads to true knowledge and liberation. In Pali, this is Vija Vimukti. And so this is in opposition to nourishing the ignorance pathway. So true knowledge and liberation means understanding the arising and passing away of suffering, and also how to realize the ending of suffering through the development of these things. It's similar, but it's a shorter insight pathway to the Vija Sutta, and it doesn't really present the other side. So that Avija Sutta we've mentioned before, we've previously examined it, and we also referred to it in Bojanga part one. So that's Anguttara Nikaya chapter 10, discourse number 61. So that's similar to this. 
So I'll read out the extract from the Kundalia Sutta. Kundalia, the Tathagata lives for the benefit and fruit of true knowledge and liberation. And then Kundalia asked the Buddha, but Master Gautama, what things when developed and cultivated fulfill true knowledge and liberation? And the Buddha answers, the seven factors of enlightenment, Kundalia, when developed and cultivated, fulfill true knowledge and liberation. And then Kundalia pipes up again. But Master Gautama, what things, when developed and cultivated, fulfill seven factors of enlightenment? And the Buddha answers, the four establishments of mindfulness, Kundalia, when developed and cultivated, fulfill the seven factors of enlightenment. And then he pipes up again, but Master Gautama, what things, when developed and cultivated, fulfill the four establishments of mindfulness? And then the Buddha answers, the three kinds of good conduct, Kundalia, when developed and cultivated, fulfill the four establishments of mindfulness. And then he pipes up one more time and says, but Master Gautama, what things, when developed and cultivated, fulfill the three kinds of good conduct? And the Buddha kindly answers, restraint of the sense faculties, Kundalia, when developed and cultivated, fulfills the three kinds of good conduct. So there are a few important points to highlight here to help us to develop a solid foundation to develop the Bojangas that leads to this true knowledge and liberation, which is Nibbana, really. So firstly, we can see that what nourishes the seven factors of enlightenment is the four establishments of mindfulness. So we know this as Satipatthana. And this is the condition or nourishment for these seven factors of enlightenment. So this is what we'll establish in order to arouse Satisambhujanga and kick off our development of the Bhujangas. We know the Buddha and the noble Arahants consistently stated that the four establishments of mindfulness leads to the ending of suffering. So that's particularly in the chapter in Sanyutta Nikaya on Satipatthana. Now, those who have been enlightened in the past will enlighten in the present or will enlighten in the future do so by giving up the five hindrances and correctly practicing to develop the four establishments of mindfulness and correctly developing the seven factors of enlightenment. So there are suttas that say that. And as we deep dive into the Sila Sutta, I will go through how we do so in accordance with the Buddha's instructions. The second point about this particular insight pathway is about the three kinds of good conduct. So Tini Sucharitani and the, this is the conditional nourishment, as we can see, for the four establishments of mindfulness. So by this, we mean dasakusala, the ten wholesome or skillful conduct by body, speech, and mind. So we refrain from killing living beings. We don't take what is not given. We refrain from sexual misconduct. We don't take what is not given. We, I think I said that. So we refrain from lying, from harsh speech, from divisive speech, from frivolous talk. We develop non-ill will, non-covetousness, and of course we cultivate the right view. So this is how we are virtuous. Now, one of the common questions people ask is, uh, is around virtue. And they ask questions like, why do we need virtue? How come this sutta is called the discourse on virtue when it's about the bojangas? What happens if we ignore virtue? And one of the ways to address this is by looking at this particular insight pathway in Kundalini Sutta. Because essentially what the Buddha is showing us is that good conduct or virtue is needed because this is how we develop the four establishments of mindfulness. 
And you might ask why. And it's because being virtuous means we establish the right view. That's part of the mental good conduct. So if we have that, then it enables us to establish the mindfulness really, really well. Now, if we have the wrong view, that means we have the wrong mental conduct, then we develop the wrong path, which includes the wrong mindfulness. And it means we can't arouse the bojangas. Right view discerns what is skillful or wholesome and what's to be cultivated. So when we abandon what is unskillful or unwholesome, that's so we can develop what is skillful and wholesome, that which is rooted in non-greed, non-hatred and non-delusion. So we've looked at this in many, many sutta meditations. So for example, Portaliya Sutta or Vatupama Sutta and so on. So in simple terms, we become virtuous in order to develop the Noble Eightfold Path in order to develop these wholesome dhammas. So it's a very important thing. When we associate with the Buddha, the noble ones, we incline towards good conduct because they have perfect conduct and encourage us to train in higher virtue because they know it's the base for all these wholesome dhammas. And this was also a question that King Milinda asked Venvunagasena. Now, even if we were to think just for a moment about how we would conduct ourselves around an arahant, we would certainly not indulge or incline towards unwholesome conduct. We would incline towards being upright. So that means refraining from killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, the wrong kinds of speech, ill will, covetousness, wrong view. We would feel shameful to cultivate unwholesome things around them. So we can see how conducive to the path it can be to associate with the right kind of company, with good friends, Kalyanamittas, who are developing the noble path, and even better if they have perfected the path. Now, in contrast, wrong company or bad friends, Papa Mitata, they encourage us to be negligent, to not make effort to develop and maintain our virtue, to continue with wrong view. So we are prevented from establishing right mindfulness and therefore we can't arouse the bhujangas. And another point is that virtue leads to happiness because it's meritorious, because we've made effort to walk the noble path, something that is hard to do, and also because happiness is the blessing or the benefit of having developed virtue and ultimately to develop towards the long-lasting happiness of Nibbāna. And then the third point to make about this insight pathway is that we can see that restraint of the sense faculties, indriya sambhara, is the condition or nourishment for the three kinds of good conduct. And again, the Buddha and the Noble Ones encourage us to develop sense restraint, whether it's lay people or monastics, because what they understand for any living being is that one doesn't want to pollute the mind. Because when you don't pollute the mind, you're capable of developing more inwardly to contemplate noble dhamma. In this way, the mind gladdens, one becomes happy, and the mind easily concentrates. So we know this as dwelling vigilantly, apamada vihari, rather than dwelling negligently, pamada vihari. And so the connection to good conduct is very, very clear. When we're unrestrained with our senses, we constantly get pulled out pulled out into the world. So that means we're no longer withdrawn or secluded from the world. We're no longer secluded from sensual pleasures and defilement. So it makes it harder to actually contemplate noble dhamma when the mind is polluted like that. 
So what is given in this insight pathway in Kundalini Sutta is actually very important. It helps us to pull certain dhammas together to see how they're connected. It also shows us that if we ignore these things or miss their importance, then we won't have laid a good foundation for arousing bojangas. So we won't be successful in developing them, nor developing them to fulfillment. So these things are very useful when it comes to diagnosing why we may not be able to arouse the bojangas. So it's good to spend some time making sure we understand these component parts and to follow what the Buddha is instructing. With that in mind, let's now begin our deep dive into the Buddha's teaching in the Sila Sutta. So the Buddha says, Bhikkhus, these bhikkhus who are accomplished in virtue, accomplished in concentration, accomplished in wisdom, accomplished in liberation, accomplished in knowledge and vision of liberation, even the sight of those bhikkhus is helpful, I say, even listening to them, even approaching them, even attending on them, even recollecting them. Even going forth after them is helpful, I say. For what reason? Because when one has heard the Dhamma from such bhikkhus, one dwells withdrawn by way of two kinds of withdrawal, withdrawal of body and withdrawal of mind. What the Buddha has highlighted here is how precious it is to be taught by an arahant. Only an arahant is accomplished in virtue, accomplished in concentration, accomplished in wisdom, accomplished in liberation, and accomplished in knowledge and vision of liberation, perfected in these accomplishments in knowledge and conduct. So it's important to acknowledge that there is a significant difference between an arahant and those with lesser noble attainment. And the Buddha is making that point here by his statement about how beneficial and helpful it can be for us if we're able to see them to listen to them, approach them, attend them, recollect and even go forth with such a noble being. We would receive a direct thread of noble dhamma that is pure and so valuable because that arahant has completely destroyed all greed, hatred and delusion. Arahants are able to share what is obscured or difficult to penetrate because they have seen through it directly for themselves. And the precision of that dhamma is immense and very much founded on the Buddha's words and instructions. So an arahant is actually a true model for us, a true role model for us, someone we would gladly wish to emulate, following their footsteps because they did what the Buddha taught. And so an immense amount of conviction, sadda, and confidence arises just by associating with them. Of course, one way is certainly to diligently follow the instructions given by the Buddha and the Noble Arahants in the Pali Canon. But it's also important to recognize and not discount the Arahants dwelling all the way up to the pure abode, especially those in the Akanitha Brahma realm who have listened to many Buddhas due to the long lifespan in the pure abodes and have strongly developed their Panya Indriya, so their spiritual faculty of wisdom. Arahants have an immense compassion for those with sattva with a little dust in their eyes because they've seen the range of suffering, particularly in the lower realms, and they don't wish for any living being to experience that much suffering. However, these noble beings cannot help us if we block them. So how do we block them? The answer is quite simple. By being difficult to instruct, so dulicha, having unwholesome qualities such as bad wishes, glorifying ourselves and demeaning others, uh, having anger, not willing to be reproved, 
having other unskilled states and holding tenaciously to our own views. Only when we keep our precepts and are easy to instruct are these noble beings able to help us. So also in this passage of Sila Sutta, the Buddha has said, because when one has heard the Dhamma from such bhikkhus, one dwells withdrawn by way of two kinds of withdrawals, withdrawal of body and withdrawal of mind. So the Pali word here is upakasena, translated as withdrawal, and also can be translated as separation or seclusion. And there are two kinds, so the physical withdrawal or seclusion, so the kaya, upakasena, and mental withdrawal seclusion, chitta, upakasena. So this means that by associating with arahants, we hear true dhamma, and therefore we are encouraged to incline towards seclusion or solitude. This can also apply to a certain degree when we associate with those with noble attainments, so sotapanna, path and fruit, sakadagami, path and fruit, anagami, path and fruit, and arahath, path. Now, if you remember, the Buddha encouraged Anathapindika and 500 lay followers to cultivate seclusion and expounded its benefits in the Piti Sutta. This is Ankutrikaya chapter 5, discourse number 176. And we'll be referencing that sutta when we look at the Piti Sambhujanga further into this session. Now, in practice, this resonates. Just think about it. If we meet a wise monastic or lay person with good conduct, we hear the true Dhamma from them, we get inspired, and what arises is the desire to prioritize time towards developing the noble path. So we might take time off from work, or take time off from other responsibilities and go for a Dhamma session, or a meditation retreat, or go stay in a monastery or place for a retreat. So this is a physical withdrawal or seclusion from the world. And then we make effort to learn and develop based on what the Buddha has taught. We purify our virtue by taking precepts. We practice restraint towards sensual pleasures and we abandon mental defilements. And we give time to train in higher virtue, higher concentration and higher wisdom. So this is mental withdrawal or seclusion. Now we know from the Buddha that he talks about good friendship, good companionship and good comradeship that it's 100% of the spiritual path, and this is in the Upada Sutta. And it, if we do so, we expect to develop and cultivate the Noble Eightfold Path by having such good friends. And also there's a Dhammapada verse, number 61, where we're encouraged by the Buddha to go alone if we seek a companion and cannot find one who is better than us or equal to us because there can be no companionship with people who are unwise, who are foolish. And so this highlights associating with those who have noble attainment because they've made progress on the path and we can learn from these good friends. And also in this Bojanga Sangyutta, there's a discourse called Padma Suri Upama Sutta and it's on this right, simile of the rising sun. And the Buddha has stated, Bhikkhus, this is the forerunner and precursor of the rising of the sun, that is the dawn. So too, bhikkhus, for a bhikkhu, this is the forerunner and precursor of the arising of the seven factors of enlightenment. That is good friendship. When a bhikkhu has a good friend, it is to be expected that he will develop and cultivate the seven factors of enlightenment. And then it lists out the, the seven. So we can see by associating with noble ones, 
it is to be expected that we will develop and cultivate the seven factors of enlightenment. When we are around them, our enthusiasm towards the Dhamma very much increases. And Noble Ones always encourage us to develop the Bodhipakya Dhammas and to never lose sight of the ultimate goal of Nibbana, the complete cessation of suffering. So in the next passage of the Sila Sutta, the Buddha then stated, dwelling thus withdrawn, one recollects that Dhamma and thinks it over. So in Pali, this is Dhamma Anusarati Anuvitakati. Whenever bhikkhus or bhikkhu dwelling thus withdrawn, recollects that Dhamma and thinks it over, on that occasion, the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is aroused by the bhikkhu. On that occasion, the bhikkhu develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of mindfulness comes to fulfillment by development in the bhikkhu. So the Buddha's words are clear. The enlightenment factor of mindfulness, Satisambhojanga, will arise if we are physically and mentally withdrawn or secluded from the world and central pleasures and central defilements. And also if we recollect the Dhamma, what we have heard from the Buddha or the Noble Ones by associating with them. So this means direct transmission or from these instructions of the Buddha and Noble Ones in the Pali Canon. When Satisambhojanga is aroused, that means we then can develop it and continue to develop it to fulfillment. So before we go into what Dhamma we should recollect to arouse Satisambhojanga, let's briefly re revisit the importance of the right view. So we can connect this with the Noble Eightfold Path and how the Buddha taught right view is the leader, the forerunner. In the Sutta meditations we've studied together, we constantly see how the Buddha gets us to establish right view in pretty much every single inside pathway. If we have right view, it means we develop the Noble Eightfold Path. In the absence of right view, we have wrong view and we develop the wrong Eightfold Path. So how does right view arise? It's when two conditions are present. Another's utterance, so parato goso, and wise contemplation, so yoniso manasikara. And we've examined this in one of our extended Dhamma sessions titled Why Yoniso Manasikara is Essential to the Noble Eightfold Path, and also in another session, What Things Should Be Wisely Contemplated based on the Silavanta Sutta. So that's very much about Yoniso Manasikara and being able to use the Buddha's words to. Uh, dwell wisely, uh, wisely contemplate. So as we saw in part one on the Vajangas, Yonisomanisikara is also essential for the development of each factor of enlightenment. So let me repeat that, each factor of enlightenment. So there are sutta references that include Yonisomanisikara Sutta, that's Sanyutta Nikaya chapter 46, discourse number 35, and also the Ajatikanga Sutta, that's uh, Sanyutta Nikaya, chapter 46, discourse 49, and also the Ahara Sutta, also chapter 46, discourse number 51. But it's safe to say developing any of the Bodhipakya Dhammas, so the 37 factors of enlightenment, including Bojangas, requires wise contemplation of the fully enlightened Buddha's words and instructions. And this is so we can realize the ultimate goal of the complete cessation of suffering, Nibbana. So if we examine the sutta references on this particular page, so we see that because there are these two conditions for the arising of right view, what two? The utterance of another's words, 
and wise contemplation. So these are two conditions for the arising of right view. So there's two sutta reference there, including the Maha Vedala Sutta. And then in the chapter of one thing, in the Dutiyavaga Sutta, the Buddha then stated, because I do not see even a single thing on account of which unarisen right view arises and arisen right view increases so much as wise contemplation. So Yonisomanisakara. For one of wise contemplation, unarisen right view arises and arisen right view increases. Now, the reason why I use wise contemplation and not careful attention as written there is that careful attention sometimes doesn't give that idea of pondering it over, really looking at it. Sometimes people assume attention is just you give it attention, you mark it in your mind, then you move on. But Buddha is very clear, and particularly so for Bhujangas and any of the other Bodhipakyadamas, one needs to really contemplate. And this will become clear as we go through the rest of this session. So when we associate with the Buddha and the Noble Ones and receive these instructions on Dhamma from them, this fulfills the utterance of another, so Paratagosu. So wisdom produced by hearing, so this is called Suttamayapanya in Pali, arises. And when we rec recollect these instructions, think them over or wisely contemplate them, right view gets established. So wisdom produced by thought, chinta mayapanya, arises. And as we know, right view gives rise to right thought or intention. That in turn gives rise to right speech. That in turn gives rise to right action. That in turn gives rise to right livelihood. And that in turn gives rise to right effort. That in turn gives rise to right mindfulness. And that in turn gives rise to right concentration. So there are many suttas that talk about that. Now, when we develop in this way, we gain insight into the Dhamma about how we come to arise and pass away. And we recognize that this dire predicament of rebirth is not ended. And so we clearly see the Noble Eightfold Path is the way that leads out of this suffering and leads to Nibbana. So wisdom produced by the development is what arises here. In Pali, this is Bhavanameya Panya. So this is how the insight or wisdom pathways of the Buddha fundamentally work. They help us to get out of this whole mass of suffering. It's in the mastery of the Buddha's instructions, the wisdom that arises from hearing it, thinking or contemplating it, and developing it. So this is very important to bear in mind as we progressively develop the Pujangas. Let's not now look at how we can arouse Satisambhojanga, so the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, by developing the four establishments of mindfulness. We've actually done this in our meditations before when we've looked at, is it worth taking as me and mine? And there's also a guided meditation on that. But for this session, we'll go through the teaching given by Venerable Ananda in the Ananda Sutta. This is Sangyutta Nikaya, chapter 22. Discourse number 159. And we can go through it as if we are spending time with the Buddha and he is directly instructing us. It's actually quite a short discourse. And just to say there are many similar instances where the Buddha would instruct in this way. Many, many. It is often not realized that the Buddha is helping the bhikkhus and others to establish the four establishments of mindfulness, Satipatthana, through these series of questions and prompts on either the five aggregates or the six sense bases. And when you read these suttas, 
is what could be termed real-time Yonisomaisikara instructed by the Buddha. In fact, in the Chula Rahula Vada Sutta, this is Majjhimunikaya Discourse number 147, Venerable Rahula got enlightened while receiving similar instructions from the Buddha. He was wisely contemplating the Buddha's words as they sat together at the root of a certain tree in the grove. And he was also responding to the Buddha's questions and prompts. So with that in mind, let's get, now go through the Ananda Sutta. At Savati, then the Venerable Ananda approached the Blessed One and said to him, Venerable Sir, it would be good if the Blessed One would teach me the Dhamma in brief, so that having heard the Dhamma from the Blessed One, I might dwell alone, withdrawn, diligent, ardent, and resolute. So we can note here that Venerable Ananda has said about having heard the Dhamma from the Buddha, he would withdraw, find seclusion, and make effort. And then the Buddha says, what do you think, Ananda, is form permanent or impermanent? And Venerable Ananda says, impermanent, Venerable Sir. Buddha then says, is what is impermanent, suffering or happiness? And Venerable Ananda answers, suffering, Venerable Sir. Buddha then says, is what is impermanent, suffering and subject to change, fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. And Venerable Ananda correctly answers, no, Venerable Sir. And then the Buddha goes through feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness in the same way. So impermanent, suffering, subject to change, and this is not mine, not I am, not myself. So then he ends, therefore, Ananda, any kind of form whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, seeing thus he understands there is no more for this state of being. So as we can see, it is what we have transposed into our meditation on, is it worth taking as me and mine? So we normally ask these questions that have been underlined on the slide in one sentence. If it is impermanent, suffering, Subject to change, is it worth taking as me and mine? Or is it fit to be regarded as me and mine? Let's look at this four nutriment table, also called the four unprofitable directions. And one thing to point out, this table on the screen is all about understanding samudaya. So how we come to arise, the arising phenomena, how suffering comes to arise. And the other table we use for the four modes of practice, so the patipadas, so painful practice, slow and quick realization, pleasant practice, slow and quick realization, also called the four profitable directions. That is all about athangama, how we pass away, so the passing away phenomena, how we not come to arise, so how suffering doesn't come to arise, it ceases. So both of these form the basis for wisdom and understanding in the Buddha's dispensation of the arising and passing away phenomena. So what's behind the Buddha's teaching to Venerable Ananda and how it summarizes down to if it is impermanent suffering and subject to change, is it worth taking as me and mine, is wise contemplation of the four establishments of mindfulness, the whole Satipatthana. This is what we do as Yonisomansikara. What we're really contemplating here is the truth of our predicament in order to understand and establish mindfulness. So if we are born, we are subject to aging. If there is aging, there's also sickness and death. So we are continuously subject to change. And death really means there is no permanency. We don't last. Aging, sickness and death needs to be 
contemplated thoroughly. So really seeing this as our predicament when we birth an existence is the key. Now, what we really see is that we keep searching for what is subject to aging, for what is subject to sickness, for what is subject to defilement, for what is subject to death. This is what Buddha has said is our ignoble search. We remember this from the Pariyasana Sutta. If we establish mindfulness correctly and arouse Satisambhujanga, then our search becomes noble because we're inclined towards Nibbana. So if we have wisely contemplated that, that uh, statement, if it is impermanent, suffering and subject to change, is it worth taking as me and mine? Then we see there is no permanency. And then what we do is we understand our experience is really suffering. It's not pleasure. It's not happiness. So what we keep meeting is death-bound, therefore dukkha-bound. If this is the case, it's not fit to be regarded as me and mine. It's not worth taking as me and mine. So we can see that what we have constructed was based on sick perceptions. And this is included in what we call perversions or vipalasa in Pali. This is the basis of ignorance. So the sick perception of attractiveness, subhasanya, the sick perception of permanency, nichasanya, the sick perception of pleasure or happiness, sukhasanya, and the sick perception of self or me and mine, atasanya, these perceptions are lies. They're based on wrong view. Why we live in fear is because deep down we know permanency is based on lies. Something in us knows that consciously or unconsciously that we continuously experience death of consciousness. So at the end of this life, it will be death of this body. But during this life, we also experience death of relationships, death of a job, death of an experience, including eating meals, catching up with people, forms of entertainment, sports, farewells at the airport, death of a jhana or death of a formless attainment, countless death moments. So we are constantly experiencing death. But what happens is we are strongly conditioned to cover it up, distract ourselves, fix it with other experiences and keep going. The fact that we lament about these things shows us that we really do know death of consciousness has happened because we ask questions like, why did this happen? How could this be? Why? Why? And if we don't develop the mind to understand Dhamma, then when the death of the body happens, so to our loved ones, our pets, other people, and eventually our own, what happens is we're shocked. We're overwhelmed, we're in disbelief. But if we have understood what the Buddha is teaching us, then we see these things with more wisdom. The Buddha spoke on the four establishments of mindfulness to Venerable Ananda when he was affected at the passing of Venerable Sariputta in the Chunda Sutta. The Buddha reminded him, but have I not already declared, Ananda, that we must be parted, separated, and severed from all who are dear and agreeable to us? How, Ananda, it is to be obtained here. May what is born come to be conditioned and subject to disintegration, not disintegrate, not disintegrate. That is impossible. So the Buddha is constantly reminding and correcting any defects in mindfulness. So this is supramundane mindfulness we're talking about. Very powerful stuff. Not just mindful of just everything, but specific four things. So when we establish mindfulness correctly and we see this Dhamma clearly with right view, 
then we don't want to construct volitional formations or our sankharas based on any of these sick perceptions to get the same predicament over and over again. We don't want to allow consciousness to establish in any of these places. <clears throat> so steadying on form, feeling, sick perceptions, volitional formations, but in particular to bojangas, we don't want it to abide in sick perceptions. So this is the crux of why we develop bojangas to overcome these sick perceptions that lead us to construct this is mine, this I am, this is myself in any existence. So not taking anything as mine, me and mine. We develop the bojangas to overcome the wrong view and to train ourselves to establish and develop and maintain the right view. In this way, we cut down particularly this third line, this third unprofitable direction or mental volition as nutriment, because it leads to going the wrong way with fear. We will examine this more deeply when we go through pleasant practice with slow realization. So Sukhaparipada Dandapinya, that inside pathway. And that is, that is the medicine for this. And this is why in the Vidya Sutta that we mentioned in part one, why the Buddha said, we can abandon the three discriminations. I am superior, I am equal, I am inferior. And we do this by developing the seven factors of enlightenment because it's very much down this line that we have those discriminations. Now, if we ask ourselves, what do we hold on to as this perception of self, of me and mine? What we come to see, if we've contemplated correctly, that it is this, the physical nutriment. That's what's causing so much trouble, coupling kara ahara. We constructed a physical body in our past birth, and after that we died. And out of ignorance and craving, and particularly in this case for a human birth, sensual desire, we constructed another one. So now in this birth, if we wisely contemplate and see that we are subject to aging sickness and we can expect death, knowing this, what we can see is that we don't want to construct another one after this birth because it would be death-bound and again suffering. So what we are understanding is death and the impermanent nature. So through our volitional formations, consciousness can only construct what is death-bound. I'll repeat that again. Through our volitional formations, when they're sick, consciousness can only construct what is death-bound. So that is what is its inherent defect. We cannot construct anything that lasts. So we are inherently subject to suffering in every existence. Repeat again. We cannot construct anything that lasts. And so it's subject to suffering in every existence. So for this Dhamma session, I'm not going to go any deeper. I'm just going to keep it at this broad level because in future sessions down the track, we can look at something more deeper, something that goes beyond just physical form, uh, something that goes into the dangers of rebirth associated with form jhanas and formless fears, so beyond the central realm. So if we contemplate in this way, the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, Satisambhujanga, will arise. And having established this mindfulness, we can keep recollecting it, sustaining it, making sure it's not defective. Then Satya Sampojanga will develop further and eventually develop to fulfillment, as the Buddha has stated. Before we go into Dhamma Vichaya Sampojanga, I'll just mention how there can be def defects in how we arouse and sustain Satya Sampojanga. 
So let's say we have done the above contemplation and we've clearly established that it is impermanent, it is suffering, subject to change, and so we're not going to regard it as me and mine. But then we go to the doctor and we get news that we have a severe illness, like maybe a cancer or some heart defect or something in the body. And we do tests and find out that something needs to be removed. And so when we contemplate the Dhamma, when we get back at home and say what comes in the mind, oh, the body shouldn't be sick. Why has it failed me? Why me? What if this surgery fails or this treatment or similar things? Then this is a defect in our mindfulness because sick perceptions are arising in the mind. Likewise, if we think, any kind of treatment or surgery will permanently fix the body, then this is also a defect in our mindfulness. And to be clear, if there is sickness, do the best of what's available to treat the sickness at a medical level. So we're not saying don't do any medical treatment. Go ahead, do so, do the best that you can find. But the important point that relates to this contemplation is about not allowing sick perceptions to sabotage our mindfulness. And it can also be something small in our lives as well, such as when something like our car breaks down or there's damage or decay to our house. If we similarly think, this shouldn't happen to my car, it's only a few years old, or we think, how can there be a crack in the side of the house? Or how can the paint deteriorate so quickly? Then there's also defects in our mindfulness. What we are denying here is either associated to aging, sickness, or that sort of thing. So in our meditation, we need to make sure and check and look for these kinds of defects, particularly around aging, sickness, and of course, death. Arousing Dhamma Vichaya Sambhojanga, the next factor of enlightenment, will also help us as well. So in the next passage of the Sila Sutta, the Buddha then declared, dwelling thus mindfully, he discriminates that Dhamma with wisdom, examines it with wisdom, makes an investigation of it with wisdom. Whenever bhikkhus, a bhikkhu dwelling, this thus mindfully discriminates that Dhamma with wisdom, examines it, makes an investigation of it. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of investigation of Dhamma is aroused by the bhikkhu. On that occasion, the bhikkhu develops the enlightenment factor of investigation of Dhamma. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of investigation of Dhamma comes to fulfillment by development in the bhikkhu. So Dhamma Vichaya can be translated in a number of ways, such as investigation of Dhamma, also investigation of the truth, so truth of the things as they actually are, or the four noble truths. It can also be translated as investigation of principles and discrimination of states. And here we, we use investigation of Dhamma and we could also use investigation of the truth because they seem the closest to the mark. The other sort of leaves the door open for all kinds of investigation or discrimination of more mundane matters. And when it comes to the definition of Bojanga, each enlightenment factor is meant to lead to enlightenment. So we want to be able to use this investigation of Dhamma or the truth that is the Four Noble Truths, because this leads to, to the inclination or leads towards Nibbana. Dhamma Sambojanga is really a synonym for wisdom. 
And along with the spiritual faculty of wisdom, the power of wisdom, training in higher wisdom, the aggregate of wisdom, knowledge, right view, insight, and so on. So Pethagorpides actually gives this list of things. And it says, these are all the things that help us to understand and penetrate the Dhamma. So Dhamma Vichaya is also one of these. We can also understand Dhamma Vichaya from this question posed by King Melinda to Venerable Nagasena on wisdom. In the questions of King Melinda, there the king says to Venerable Nagasena, Venerable Nagasena, how many kinds of wisdom are there? And he answers, seven, O king. And then he asks, and by how many kinds of wisdom does one become wise? And of course, um, Venerable Nagasena says, by one, that is to say, the kind by the kind of wisdom called investigation of the truth. So the seven kinds of wisdom in this case is referring to the Bojangas. And in particular, he's saying the one is Dhammavicheya Sambojanga. And so the king asks, then why is it said there are seven? And the <clears throat> and Venerable Nagasena says, tell me, O king. And then Venerable Nagasena says, tell me, O king, suppose a sword were lying in its sheath and not taken in the hand, could it be cut off? Could it cut off anything you wanted to cut off with it? And then Venerable, uh, then the king says, certainly not. So Venerable Nagasena says, just so, great king, by the other kinds of wisdom, can nothing be understood without investigation of the truth? And so uh, the king says, very good, Nagasena. So this gives us an idea of the significance of Dhammavichaya as a core component to be able to truly understand with wisdom. And this is in the context of developing the Bojangas and the path that leads to the ending of suffering. The key phrases that are in this Sila Sutta and repeated throughout the Bojanga Sangyutta that we've underlined here is that we need to learn these particular terms with regard to Dhamma Vichaya Sambhojanga. And these are Dhamma Panya Yapa Vichinati. So this means discriminating the Dhamma with wisdom. And it can also be translated as investigating, examining, exploring the Dhamma with wisdom. So, Pavichinati. The second one is Dhamma Panyaya Pavicharati. So, you examine the Dhamma with wisdom. And this can also be thoroughly investigated. So, Pavicharati. And then the third one is Dhamma Panya Parivimang Sama Pajati. So this means makes an investigation. It can also be translated as a complete or full inquiry or thorough search or examination of the Dhamma with wisdom. So the three terms again are pavichinati, the second is pavicharati, and the third is parivimang samapajati. So discriminating, examining, and making an investigation or full inquiry. So how do we arouse the Dhamma Vichaya Sambhojanga? First, we see that the arising of Dhamma Vichaya Sambhojanga is connected to Sati Sambhojanga. So as the Buddha has stated, if we are dwelling mindfully, having aroused the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, and have understood that the physical nutriment from our last contemplation, coupling Karahara is the problem, then we discriminate, examine, and fully investigate this with wisdom. So there is no room for wrong view to arise. And it's similar to what we contemplate in the Samadhi Bhavana Sutta. 
and even the first profitable direction. So again, let's look at this four nutriment or four unprofitable direction table and go through it. So from our understanding of these four nutriments, if we take delight and welcome and remain holding to the physical nutriment, so you remember from Samadhi Bhavana Sutta, we say, Abhinandati, Abhiwadati, Ajosayatitati, this is how craving arises. And so when this happens, we can see that sensual desire kicks off because we take it as subha, subha sanya. For example, if we see an attractive person, enticing food, a cute animal, some beautiful thing, then we have this perversion of something that is attractive rather than unattractive, enticing rather than unenticing. So sensual desire escalates and then we activate these perversions, that it is lasting, that it is happy or pleasurable, and that it's worth taking as me and mine. So dependent origination activates. So all the wrong pathways, we start to go down all these wrong pathways, and our volitional formations want to construct consciousness along this wrong or ignoble path, the one that is death-bound, dukkha-bound. So we can see dependent origination, patichasamupatha, getting activated. So what you can see on this table is samudaya, the arising phenomenon part. And so that is what we discriminate with wisdom. This is the pa-pichinati part. So having established mindfulness, we recognize the impermanent nature. So we don't want this death-bound thing. We don't want this dukkha-bound result. We don't want to activate dependent origination. So what we now say is we don't take delight in the physical nutriment, we don't remain holding, we don't welcome it and don't remain holding. So in Pali, Nabhinandati, Nabhiwadati, Najosayatitati. So then there's no delight, therefore there's no condition for clean, there's no condition for existence, there's no condition for birth, no condition for aging and death, and no condition for the whole mass of suffering. So this is the Athangama, passing away component. So we are cutting off this, this pathway. So when we examine or thoroughly contemplate Samudaya and Atangama, both the arising and passing away phenomena with wisdom, this is the Dhammang Panya Pavicharati. So Pavicharati path. And then having it deeply understood with right view that this is an ignoble or wrong path, so this is a fatal predicament that we don't want to pursue, so now that means we're heavenly inclining towards niroda, towards cessation. That means we don't want to construct another thing that is death-bound, ignoble, and defective. So this is what is meant by making an investigation or full inquiry of, with wisdom. So this is the parivimam, parivimam samapajati. So if we contemplate in this way, the enlightenment factor of investigation of Dhamma will arise. And if we frequently contemplate this Dhamma by discriminating in this way, then we deepen our understanding, we uh, further incline towards Nibbana. And so this Dhamma Vichaya Sambhojanga further develops and eventually we develop it to fulfillment, as the Buddha stated. So one thing to point out at this point is that there are levels to these bhujangas. The more dhamma we penetrate with right view, the more we can develop each of the bhujangas. So even this dhamma vichaya sambhujanga is no different. So if we apply more dhamma to it, it can intensify 
and certain understanding of Dhamma can be complete. So what Buddha teaches in the Vajanga Sangyuta can really help us to do this. So since we are gradually building our practice, I'm keeping things more straightforward at this stage based on what has already been shared on Sutta Meditation Series. But as we keep developing, what can be shared on developing each of these Bhujangas is a great deal more, particularly around overcoming the desire to be reborn in higher realms of existence. But for now, the encouragement is to learn and practice the important Sutta Meditation. Some have already been referenced in the session today. And to get those fundamentals right. So then we can continue to progress our development of this Buddha's noble path and do that together. And really remember that wise contemplation, Yoniso Manisakara, is really important because thinking correctly about the right things, contemplating them thoroughly, denourishing the hindrances, developing the noble eightfold path and the right concentration, this is key. And this is key also that one has to give up unwise contemplation. So yoniso manzikara, yoniso manzikara, giving up thinking about the wrong things, not indulging in them, giving up nourishing the hindrances, giving up indulging in the lazy or the weak mind, giving up dwelling in wrong concentrations that dull the mind and so on. So in the next passage of the Sila Sutta, the Buddha then stated, while he discriminates that Dhamma with wisdom, examines it, makes an investigation of it, his energy is aroused without slackening. Whenever bhikkhus, a bhikkhus energy is aroused without slackening, as he discriminates that Dhamma with wisdom, examines it, makes an investigation of it. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of energy is aroused by the bhikkhu. On that occasion, the bhikkhu develops the enlightenment factor of energy. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of energy comes to fulfillment by development in that bhikkhu. Again, the again the connection to the previous bhujanga, having aroused Dhamma Vichaya Sambhujanga by discriminating, examining, and making an investigation of the Dhamma with wisdom, we are leaning heavily towards the cessation of suffering. So energy or effort is aroused without slackening towards Nibbana. Because we understand the only safety of Nibbana offers complete freedom from suffering. If we construct any kind of existence, it will be death-bound. And so it only results in suffering due to dependent origination. So the important Pali word here to, to look at is asalinam, which is translated as without slackening. So it can also be translated as not sluggish, unflagging, active, unshaken or unwavering. So the strong impression we get is that we don't slack off. We don't get lazy from what needs to be done to get out of this terrible predicament, especially since we've understood that the physical nutriment is the problem. So this is how we arouse Sati Sambhojanga and arouse Dhamma Vichaya Sambhojanga. And now we arouse the Virya Sambhojanga. And we realize that we need substantial effort we need unwavering energy towards Nibbana. So what does this actually mean? It means we don't allow any unarisen, unwholesome or unskillful states to enter or arise in the mind. Because if we allow them to enter, then the ignoble path starts up again. And this means our mind gets polluted with unskilled states. And this increases other unwholesome conduct. So it increases and expands. 
And so we've veered off the Noble Eightfold Path. So what are these unwholesome, unskillful states? They are the 10 unwholesome conducts. So dasa akusala, through body, speech, and mind. So rooted in greed, hatred, and delusion. So killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, harsh speech, divisive speech, frivolous talk, ill will, covetousness, and the wrong view. And also the mental stains or defilements in the Vatupama Sutta, Anumana Sutta, Anangana Sutta, and the hindrances as well. When we dis disapprove of all of these unwholesome or unskillful states, this is how we start to make effort. And if they arise, we abandon them because we don't support the development of them because that means we block the Bhujangas and we block the Noble Eightfold Path. Now, if we reflect on it, these are the things that we have tolerated or constructed in previous births. This is what kept us bound to transmigrate from one birth to another birth. And so when we have this realization, we think we don't want to keep doing this. We want to make effort not to do this and to develop the wholesome things because unless we, we do so, we're bound to the same, more of what is subject to aging, sickness, and death. The truth, as we said when we contemplated, is we can only construct what is death-bound, what is impermanent. And so having investigated, we don't want this. So we actively arouse energy, make effort without slackening to prevent unarisen, unwholesome states from arising and to abandon any arisen, unwholesome states to arise. And in this way, it is possible to then develop the wholesome dhammas, such as the bojangas and, of course, other bodhipakya dhammas. So this aligns with what we understand as right effort and also right striving. And we are strongly inclining towards nibbana. This is how we arouse the enlightenment factor of energy, vidya sambojanga. And if we frequently do this, then we can develop and eventually develop it to fulfillment. So in the next passage of the Sila Sutta, the Buddha then stated, when this energy is aroused, there arises in him rapture free of sensuality. So arada viriyasa upajati piti niramisa. Whenever bhikkhu's rapture arises in a bhikkhu whose energy is aroused, on that occasion the enlightenment factor of rapture is aroused by that bhikkhu, on that occasion, the bhikkhu develops the enlightenment factor of rapture. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of rapture comes to fulfillment by development in that bhikkhu. Again, we see it is linked. When we arouse energy or make effort, in this case, virya sambhojanga, rapture arises that is free from sensuality, often called spiritual rapture, and sometimes also joy. It is felt in the body as well as mentally. At the bodily level, it feels sometimes like tingles, waves of pleasure coursing through the body or goosebumps. Sometimes it's felt as something wonderful that is flowing from the top of the head downwards or simply circulating around the body. Also tears of joy. So it's very obvious when we experience rapture. When it's in abundance, sometimes you can't even move from that experience for a very long time. It feels so joyful so rapturous, better than what we experience through sensual pleasures. So mundane examples from daily life include when we give up our time and put energy to help others, our family, our friends, our neighbours, our colleagues, monastics, and when we realise the significance of 
giving up something. Or when we drive a long distance to visit the temple or the monastery to help to offer requisites. Or when we make time to meditate or develop the mind over worldly endeavors. Or when we make effort to keep the precepts by refraining or abandoning wrong conduct. conduct. All these things require effort, energy to do what is often quite hard. We're conditioned to seek worldly pleasure over these kinds of things, thinking that worldly pleasures are more pleasurable. But the truth, as the Buddha has stated, is when we arouse energy towards things that are rooted in non-greed, non-hatred and non-delusion, rapture arises. It can also arise when we acknowledge and endorse the energy or effort made by others. For example, if we strongly approve of all the people who have given up their time and money to cook food and bring it to the monastery or retreat center so we can keep precepts and meditate, and we see them rejoice having made that effort, we can also experience rapture out of approving their goodness and out of genuine gratitude for their encouragement and support to develop the noble path. Or we can strongly approve another person's efforts towards spiritual progress and developing the noble path or their efforts towards offering dhammadana. The strength of rapture is directly in proportion to our right view and our approval of those good actions. In contrast, when we follow the wrong path, the ignoble one, what, we, what do we usually get? Dukkha. How do we know? Because we're always lamenting about it. We're always saying things, how things went wrong, how conditions that we constructed, how they deteriorated, they sickened, how they didn't last, how we suffered loss, how we experienced death of something that we constructed. So wrong view, wrong path, ultimately always results in dukkha. So rapture or joy arises because of the energy or effort that we made towards the right path, the noble path. And in the case of the Bojangas, the arising of Piti Sambojanga happens because of the other three. So it happens because of Sati Sambojanga, Dhammavicheya Sambojanga, and Virya Sambojanga. It's a Dhamma Niyama that is something in line with the Dhamma. Rapture is the result of the other three, primarily because we've understood the truth of our predicament and we are arousing energy to develop, to completely get out of this dire predicament. And we're making effort towards that, being wholesome, cultivating wholesome dhammas. It also arises when we contemplate dhamma correctly, such as contemplating the 32 body parts or death contemplation or entering into the jhanas. When we abandon the hindrances, we can enter into the first jhana and then the second jhana. The strongest experience of rapture is in the second jhana with strong raptures, strong waves of rapture, and also in this piti sambhojanga. If we quote the Deveda Vitaka Sutta, Majjhiminikaya Discourse Number 19, the standard formula for these jhanas, the Buddha would usually state, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, I entered upon and abided in the first jhana, which is born, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. So we can see very similar instructions to what the Buddha stated for this Sila Sutta that we're studying today. Withdrawal or seclusion to think and examine the Dhamma, and then the result is rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. And then with the stilling of applied and sustained thought, 
I entered upon and abided in the second jhana, which has self-confidence and singleness of mind without applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of concentration. So in the second jhana, we recognize we're no longer needing thinking and examining. That's helped us to enter into the first jhana because the mind is inclined towards jhana. And so we focus on the rapture and pleasure that is now born of concentration. So if we've laid a good foundation to enter the jhanas, then the rapture can be very strong and going from first to second jhana intensifies it, which is really good. So whether this relates to jhana or to piti sampojanga, what is really important is to fully develop this rapture. And so don't gloss over it. Don't brush past it. Don't prematurely think, I better not indulge in this without having aroused it properly and then skillfully develop it. And definitely don't skip skip it altogether. So the reason why is because, well, a number of reasons. The first one is that rapture is very powerful at a physical and mental level. So hence why five hindrances cease when we enter into the first jhana. And also why physical and mental discomfort or pain also subside. So that's also very helpful to continue with the practice. Another thing is we had to work or put in all that effort to contemplate Dhamma and to abandon unwholesome states. So rapture is our result. It's our blessing, our benefit of having done all that work. And then we're meant to get that result, to get this rapture. And then we're meant to develop it so we can continue to develop wholesome Dhammas. If we don't develop it well, the danger is always that we'll go back to central pleasures because we believe that that experience is better. And if you remember from the Salayatana Vibhanga Sutta and the Pathway of Renunciation, so Majjhima Nikaya, Discourse Number 137, the Buddha strongly encouraged us to develop the happiness of a renunciant. So that's uh, being able to develop the jhanas, the formless attainments, those sorts of things. So in that way, we overcome householder happiness, which is in central pleasures. So this works the same for Piti Sambhojanga. By arousing and developing rapture or the enlightenment factor of rapture, we will get that experience and then we'll realize it's actually better than sensual pleasures. If we're skilled, then we can get there without trouble or difficulty and it can last for a very long time. So it's in a way, if you're very good at the merit book meditation, things that we've done, that we've given up, the time we've given, Dhammadana, even giving safety to people. If you reflect on it, you can go very, very quickly to Piti Sambhojanga or even just simply to rapture, to, to jhana. So when you experience it, you realize it's far more joyful, rapturous than sensual pleasures. And then outside of meditation, the desire for sensual pleasures starts to subside as a result of our efforts in meditation. So this is super helpful to the path because central pleasures, as the Buddha said, are a massive danger and obstruction to the path and to ultimate liberation. And we quoted before, or just briefly mentioned the Piti Sutta, Anguttara Nikaya chapter five, discourse number 176. As we mentioned briefly before, the Buddha encouraged Anathapindika and 500 lay followers to cultivate seclusion and more importantly, rapture born of seclusion. So we're not to be content just with making offerings of requisites to the Sangha. This is what the Buddha had said to Anathapindika and those 500 lay followers. 
And Venerable Sariputta explained five further benefits of cultivating rapture born of seclusion. The first is pain and sadness connected with sensuality does not occur in him. Secondly, pleasure and happiness connected with sensuality do not occur to him. Thirdly, pain and sadness connected with the unwholesome do not occur in him. Fourthly, pleasure and happiness connected with the unwholesome do not incur, occur with him. And then fifth, pain and sadness connected with the wholesome do not occur in him. And then, you know, you, you enter and dwell in the rapture of seclusion. And, and so you realize that. So people who prematurely worry about growing attached to rapture, like this piti or piti sambojanga, if you develop it for a while, what happens is we eventually see the limitations of, of rapture, such as the tiring in the body, how we become so tired, having to keep lifting uh, the rapture. And it's because it's linked to a physical experience. So inevitably, we want something better, something more stable, and that's why we go towards the next higher concentration. So the more, most important reason for properly developing rapture is that Piti Sambojanga is the basis for Pasadi Sambojanga to arise. And it's very important because repairing the body, healing the body, recovering from illness mainly happens at Pasadi Sambojanga. And let me again caveat, repair, healing, recovery from illness is a relative thing. We can only do this temporarily in order to lift the mind and the body. Ultimately, we still have to understand, as we've contemplated so far, the body is still subject to aging, sickness and death. So we can't completely overcome our predicament. The only way we can overcome our predicament is to develop the Noble Eightfold Path and these Bojangas and the other Bodhipakyatamas. But we can use Satipatthana, Bojangas, Idipadas, and any other wholesome dhammas that the Buddha has said to help us recover from illness and to temporarily assist us so we can keep developing the spiritual path and also to help others. In the next passage of the Sila Sutta, the Buddha then stated, for one whose mind is uplifted by rapture, the body becomes tranquil and the mind becomes tranquil. So this is Kayopi Pasambhati and Chitambi Pasambhati. Whenever bhikkhus, the body becomes tranquil and the mind becomes tranquil in a bhikkhu whose mind is uplifted by rapture, on that occasion, the enlightenment factor of tranquility is aroused by the bhikkhu. On that occasion, the bhikkhu develops the enlightenment factor of tranquility. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of tranquility comes to fulfillment by development in the bhikkhu. So we see it confirmed in the Buddha's words that the body becomes tranquil and the mind becomes tranquil when our mind is uplifted by rapture. So there's the connection. And this is how Pasadi Sambhojanga arises. This um, is not the same as dullness and drowsiness. So make sure that distinction is understood. Instead, the body is tranquil. So it's infused with an alertness and brightness despite this calmness. So it's not dull and drowsy. And when we talk about Pasiti Sambhojanga, the important thing we need to focus on is tranquility of the mind and tranquility of the mental states. Why we meditate so much on Vatupama Sutta, Anumana Sutta, Anangana Sutta, Saleka Sutta, all these different meditations, similar but different meditations, is because the mind cannot realize tranquility if it's imbued with defilements, mental stains, 
these unwholesome or unskilled states of the mind. So if there is, for example, derogation, disparaging, envy, stinginess, and so on, then we are burning with greed, hatred, and delusion. The mind is defiled and the mental states are defiled. This is what makes us sick, sickness of the mind and sickness of our mental states. And we would do more unwholesome conduct by speech and by physical conduct because the mind is already in the unwholesome, the unskilled state. So lying, harsh speech, divisive speech, empty speech, killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, that can all happen. And if we go deeper, what we see behind all these mental states and defilements are the perversions, the strongest one being the wrong view of me and mine. That's why we often say Vatupama Sutta, Anumana Sutta, and so on, they're anatta practices. Because we see the nature of the mind and the mental states, we see how they are founded on sick perceptions of me and mine. Other sick perceptions are also there, but the very strong one is me and mine, driving these mental states. This is why we get angry, why we derogate, why we disparage, why we have envy, why we compete, why we have stubbornness, why we have conceit, arrogance, vanity, and so on. When we develop the mind with the meditations, Vatupama Sutta, Anumana Sutta, what we're doing is abandoning unskilled states of mind by applying wisdom. So the mind gladdens. There is rapture, happiness, concentration. So by giving up unskilled states, we give up the wrong path. And so we can then develop the skilled states, the Noble Eightfold Path. We can develop Pasadi Sambhojanga. There's a chapter on security and safety in Chapter 9 of Ankutta Nikaya. And the Buddha has spoken of entering jhanas and formless attainments as security or safety in a provisional sense. Likewise, in that chapter, the Buddha also says, attaining tranquility and progressive tranquility is also safety or security in a provisional sense. So it helps us on the path. It's only when the taints are completely destroyed is this security non-provisional because it's the supreme safety or security of Nibbana. The simile that really helps us to understand how tranquility works is a simile about standing under the scorching hot sun. If we are standing under the scorching hot sun, we burn, we get scorched. But if we find some shade out of the direct heat of the sun, we immediately cool off and we feel so much better. Likewise, if we let the mind burn with unskilled states, so greed, hatred, and delusion that they're rooted in, so if we have envy, derogation, all those things, then we burn with greed, hatred, and delusion. So if we do our inner bathing and we abandon those mental states, then the mind cools down, cools off, it purifies, and we don't allow the mind to get sick again. So for example, maybe a colleague received some praise and won an award, and maybe we get envious. So if we recognize that in our mind, we're derogating that colleague saying they don't deserve the job and removing their good qualities, and then we see we're angry with them, at that point, we're burning with greed, hatred, and delusion. But then if we recognize that and we decide to abandon those unskilled states, to walk the Noble Eightfold Path, to develop Pasadi Sambhojanga, knowing it's unwholesome, that knowing that it makes us sick, when we abandon them, that's when we cool off. And that's when we don't allow it to escalate to other bad actions. Instead, if we're happy for our colleague, maybe even congratulate them, 
If this is the case, then we're no longer burning with those defilements. We're no longer veering onto the wrong path. We're developing skilled states. So what happens is the mind gets happy. The body becomes tranquil and the mind becomes tranquil. We're no longer sick. So if you remember from the Vatupama Sutta, the Buddha actually says, the imperfections of the mind, having part been given up, expelled, released, abandoned, and relinquished by me, and he gains inspiration in the meaning, gains inspiration in the Dhamma, gains gladness, connected with the Dhamma. When he is glad, rapture is born in him. In one who is rapturous, the body becomes tranquil. One whose body is tranquil feels pleasure. In one who feels pleasure, the mind becomes concentrated. So even with Vatupama Sutta, you can see it is possible to activate the Bojangas. And it's a very good one for activating, particularly Pasadisam Bojanga. So these meditations on abandoning unskilled mental states that we've been gradually developing, they're now helping us to see how we are actually activating enlightenment factors and also developing them so, so we can develop them to fulfillment. So if we frequently do inner bathing, for example, then we can further develop Pasadi Sambhujanga. In the next passage of the Sila Sutta, the Buddha then stated, for one whose body is tranquil and who is happy, the mind becomes concentrated. We can immediately see that this passage aligns with the Vatupama Sutta that we just read out and how tranquility leads to concentration. Whenever bhikkhus, the mind becomes concentrated in a bhikkhu whose body is tranquil and who is happy, on that occasion, the enlightenment factor of concentration is aroused by the bhikkhu. On that occasion, the bhikkhu develops the enlightenment factor of concentration. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of concentration comes to fulfillment by development in the bhikkhu. So there is a lot of dhamma that we have wisely contemplated up to this point. And a lot of things that have been given up or abandoned as a result of proper wisdom and understanding. So this concentration is another Dhamma Niyama. Something that is in line with having contemplated the Dhamma wisely. We have understood impermanent nature, death-bound nature, that nothing we construct will last. So it is bound to suffering. So what is getting aroused is Chanda Samadhi, concentration due to desire. That is the concentration that wants to escape this dyke predicament, going from birth to birth and suffering. This is the concentration that desires Nibbana. So that is how we arouse the enlightenment factor of concentration. If we frequently do this, then we can fulfill the Samadhi Sambhojanga and eventually develop it to fulfillment as the Buddha stated. And then in the next passage, of the Sila Sutta, the Buddha then stated, he closely looks on with equanimity at the mind thus concentrated. And whenever bhikkhus, a bhikkhu closely looks on with equanimity at the mind thus concentrated, on that occasion, the enlightenment factor of equanimity is aroused by the bhikkhu. On that occasion, the bhikkhu develops the enlightenment factor of equanimity. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of equanimity comes to fulfillment by development in the bhikkhu. So having developed concentration, we now look at that concentration carefully and thoroughly with equanimity or detachment rather than attachment. So it's a bit like checking and fine-tuning our concentration. Buddha has looked at this before in the Pachangika Sutta. And what we're doing here is we're seeing if it has any flaws, any problems, and correcting it. 
So the Buddha has used the phrase in this sutta, sadhukang ajupe pekita, which has been translated here as closely looks on with equanimity. So it can also be translated as looking carefully or thoroughly with equanimity or detachment or indifference. So as with the development of the jhanas, when we wish to proceed from third, third jhana to fourth jhana, or even when we examine the threshold from fourth jhana to formless, the Buddha instructs, instructs us to look very carefully, to wisely contemplate on our uh, concentration, to wisely reflect on it. And this applies during our meditation and once we have reached a really stable concentration, which could be fourth jhana and above. And as we said before, at third jhana concentration, we have abandoned rapture because it's too gross, tiring at a physical level, and we wanted something more stable. So when we went to third jhana, that has pleasure without the rapture and the mind is mindful and concentrated. Now, the problem here is that when we grasp or cling to this pleasure, attachment, as, as we said before, is latent in the pleasurable feeling. So pleasurable feeling is subject to change and is also suffering. So there's some degree of unmindfulness. Our mindfulness is not completely pure in this third jhana because what we're experiencing and grasping onto as pleasure in the third jhana is putting us at odds with our understanding that whatever we construct won't last, that it is death-bound and therefore dukkha-bound. So if we carefully examine and understand this properly, we see the flaw in our concentration, our third jhana concentration, as an example. And then we understand that we need to be indifferent or detached from this pleasure born of concentration. So in this way, we let go of this pleasure and go beyond pleasure and pain towards something better, something more stable, which is equanimity. And then our mindfulness gets purified. So this is exactly the same principle that applies when we look carefully at the concentration that arises with samadhi sambhojanga. If we closely and carefully check the concentration, we want to make sure there are no defects, such as getting in, imbued in that pleasure of samadhi sambhojanga, because then it will block upeka sambhojanga from arising. Now, if we have equanimity towards that and we go beyond the pleasure and pain of the samadhi sambhojanga, then we have the equanimity. We can wisely contemplate and in the Upeka Sambhujanga, there is clear comprehension. There is very good concentration level. It's very pure, very concentrated. We're alert and stable. So everything has stilled and calmed, but we can direct the mind very well to develop many, many things, including the, the knowledges and much, much more. So if we frequently arouse the Upeka Sambhujanga, then we can further develop it and eventually develop it to fulfillment, as the Buddha has stated. So again, there is deeper Dhamma to go into, but I'll save it for our Dhamma session on the third profitable direction. So pleasant practice with slow realization, Sukhapatipada Danda Binya. And subsequent to that Dhamma session, we'll also look at the fourth profitable direction. So pleasant practice with quick realization, Sukhapatipada Kipa Binya. And using that, we can also look at how to develop Bojangas with that inside pathway as well. It's a really wonderful uh, inside pathway when you develop it with bojangas and beyond that if if there's interest we can further develop the bojangas using instructions from a variety of suttas in the bojanga sangyutta and they're very very powerful
So to summarize the progressive development of these seven factors of enlightenment, we start with associating with the noble ones who have perfected. Remember, this goes all the way up to the Arahants dwelling in the pure abodes, the highest being the Akanita Brahma realm. If we keep the precepts and are easy to instruct, they will help us. So the Buddha has said, when we associate with the noble ones, we hear the Dhamma from them. Having heard the Dhamma, we get inspired and make time for physical and mental seclusion so we can practice. So for lay people, you set aside time for this, whether it's half an hour, an hour, a day or more. And remember, this is not something you do at work because when you go to work, you're paid to work and not while you're busy with other responsibilities. So you, you, you set time aside for the withdrawal or the seclusion and then you gradually develop and chip away at this Dhamma. So then when we are secluded, we recollect the Dhamma and think it over so we can arouse Satisambhojanga. As we went through, we can establish mindfulness through the contemplation of if it is impermanent, suffering, subject to change, is it fit to be regarded as me and mine? The important thing here is to thoroughly investigate aging, sickness and death. Make sure there's no defects in our contemplation. If there is death, there is no permanency. And we realize we're holding on to physical nutriment as the perception of self or me and mine, which is causing us huge problems. We did this in our past birth. And when we died, we birthed this other one, thinking it was a good idea out of craving and ignorance. And here we are again on the same trajectory. So in our meditation, seeing with wisdom, having investigated it, we give up the physical nutriment. And when we acknowledge the sickness in our perceptions, it helps us to establish mindfulness and arouse the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, develop it, and so it can come to fulfillment. Then dwelling mindfully, we now discriminate, pavichinati, examine, pavicharati, make an investigation, parivimangsa mapajati, of the Dhamma with wisdom. So these three terms are very important when it comes to developing wisdom and understanding Dhamma. We make the effort to discriminate the arising phenomena of suffering, particularly physical nutriment, how we cannot construct anything that lasts. Therefore, if we come to another birth, to dependent origination, we can only expect this whole mass of suffering. So our predicament is dire, it's fatal, and it's imbued with life. Then we contemplate the passing away phenomena of suffering and see that if we don't construct, then it all ceases. So we examine both arising and passing away. Then with the investigation or full inquiry, having seen the truth clearly, we now heavily incline towards the complete cessation of suffering. So this is how we arouse Dhamma Vichaya Sambhojanga and develop it to come to fulfillment. So when we investigate this Dhamma and incline towards the cessation of all suffering, our energy and effort is aroused without slackening, without wavering. We don't want any unarisen, unwholesome to arise. If it arises, we immediately abandon it because we don't want it to increase and expand. And we arouse energy so we develop wholesome dhammas and maintain them. So this is massive, unwavering effort towards Nibbana. This is how we arouse the Virya Sambhujanga and develop it so it can come to fulfillment. When we develop with mindfulness, investigate the Dhamma and arouse energy towards the complete cessation of suffering, then rapture free of sensuality arises. So as we said, this is a Dhamma Niyama, 
when this rapture arises, it helps us to go beyond rapture from sensual pleasures because we understand it is so much better. We feel it physically and mentally and it can become very strong. It's similar to the rapture of first and second jhana. And this is how we arouse Piti Sambhujanga and we need it to ensure we develop it well so that it can come to fulfillment as the basis for Pasadi Sambhujanga. And when our mind is uplifted with rapture, we're so happy. So our body becomes tranquil and our mind becomes tranquil. And to arouse Pasadi Sambhujanga, we need to ensure that we have tranquility of the mind and tranquility of our mental state. So we apply something like Patupamasutta. For example, we ensure we don't have unskilled states like derogation, disparaging, envy, and stinginess. If they are there, we abandon them. We do our inner bathing. In this way, our mind and mental states are tranquilized and we don't allow it to get sick again. This is how we arouse Pasavi Sambhujanga and develop it so it can come to fulfillment. And then when the body is tranquil and the mind is happy, the mind becomes concentrated. Again, this is a Dhamma Niyama, the result of contemplating with wisdom and making effort towards developing Bhujangas. This concentration has the desire for the complete cessation of suffering. So it's a desire for Nibbana. This is how we arouse the Samadhi Sambhujanga and develop it so it can come to fulfillment. And then we closely and carefully examine the concentration that has arisen with Samadhi Sambhujanga and make sure there are no flaws. If we see that we are grasping to pleasure due to concentration, then we understand attachment lies latent in that pleasurable feeling. And we remember that this pleasurable feeling is subject to change and is also suffering. Realizing this, we want to purify our mindfulness and go beyond pleasure and pain. So we go towards equanimity, which is much more pure, more stable, more concentrated. And so this is how we arouse the Upayaka Sambhujanga and develop it so it can come to fulfillment. So that's a quick summary of how to develop the seven factors of enlightenment progressively and how they're connected. The more Dhamma we can understand with wisdom, the more skilled we can become with arousing and developing those, these Bojangas. And the actual experience of developing the Bojangas is very illuminating. It's a very brightening practice. The mind is uplifted. It's not, not sick. And it feels like there is a lot of energy uh, during and after and a very real ability to penetrate the Dhamma, to know what the Buddha means. And there's also a profound inner happiness that one's on the right path, slanting and sloping and inclining towards Nibbana. Even when we progress with the arousing factors, so the first four Bhujangas, to the calming factors, the last three Bhujangas, it's not a dull process. So if there's dullness in the mind, then hindrances are arising or they're there. It could be the lack of proper development of one or more of the Bhujangas, maybe even right from the start. Likewise, if the mind is imbued with sensual desire, ill will, restlessness, worry, doubt, then those other hindrances are also there. We need to be able to see the nature of the mind, diagnose where we've gone wrong. Wrong view always means sick perceptions of permanency, pleasure, taking it as me and mine. So we should be able to see when each Bojanga is present and know it is present. Likewise, we should be able to see when each Bojanga is absent and know that it is absent. And this is part of the skill of developing the Bojangas. When they are all active, 
It is then possible to think of each one, move through each one, just as Venerable Sariputta would do so, like changing clothes. It's like the Dhamma behind activating each Bhujanga makes that possible. So when you think of a particular Bhujanga, all that Dhamma that has been understood comes to the forefront of the mind for that Bhujanga, and you know it's active, something like that. So at the end of this discourse of the Sila Sutta, the Buddha then stated, because when these seven factors of enlightenment have been developed and cultivated in this way, seven fruits and benefits may be expected. What are the seven fruits and benefits? One, one attains final knowledge early in this very life. So this means one may destroy the taints during this life. Attaining Nibbana, therefore, rebirth is ended, so one is no longer bound for suffering. One attains arahanship in this life. Two, if one does not attain final knowledge early in this life, then one attains final knowledge at the time of death. So this means one may destroy the taints at the time of death. Therefore, rebirth is ended at the time of death. So one is no longer bound for suffering. The third one is if one does not attain final knowledge early in this very life or at the time of death, then with the utter destruction of the five lower fetters, one becomes an attainer of Nibbana in the interval. So this means if one can't destroy the taint in this life or at the time of death, but one is a non-returner, so that means one is cut off the lower five fetters, then one may attain Nibbana in the interval, which means while in the mind-made body, one destroys the taints, therefore cutting off any future rebirth. So what we mean here is with the death of the actual physical body, one goes into the mind-made body and is in the interval. And that's where you contemplate the Dhamma, maybe contemplate these uh, bojangas and cultivate them fully. And at that point, you cut off any rebirth. The fourth one is if one does not attain final knowledge early in this very life, or become an attainer of Nibbana in the interval, then with the utter destruction of the five lower fetters, one becomes an attainer of the Nibbana upon landing. So this means if one hasn't been able to destroy the taints in this life or at the time of death, or as a non-returner in the interval, then a non-returner might land, say, for example, in one of the pure abodes. So this is in Pali Sudavasa. So we know this as Aviha, Atapa, Sudasa, Sudasi, and Akanita Brahma realms. Then by the time of landing, one destroys the taints. So that non-returner becomes an Arahant upon landing into that rebirth. Then the fifth one is, if one does not attain final knowledge early in this very life or become an attainer of Nibbana upon landing, then with the utter destruction of the five lower fetters, one becomes an attainer of Nibbana with it, without exertion. So this means if you haven't attained by those other means and one is a non-returner and say you land into one of the higher realms, it could be the pure word, so it could be another of the form realms, then one attains uh, at the point of, say, half that lifespan. So you destroy the taints at that point. So that non-returner non -returner becomes an arahant at that time. So maybe half of the lifespan has passed. And then the sixth one is, if one does not attain final knowledge early in this very life and so on, or becomes an attainer of Nibbana without exertion, then with the utter destruction of the five lower fetters, one becomes an attainer of Nibbana with exertion. 
So one hasn't done any of the other ways, but is a non-returner. So say, for example, you might land in one of the pure abodes or maybe in one of the form realms and you don't attain um, halfway through your lifespan, you attain, like you cut off the fetters at the end of the lifespan. So that means with exertion. So the non-returner becomes an arahant at that point. And then the very last one is, if one does not attain final knowledge early in this very life, or become an attainer of Nibbana with exertion, then with the utter destruction of the five lower fetters, one becomes one bound upstream, heading towards the Akanita realm. So this last one means if you haven't attained through any of the other means, but you're a non-returner. So what happens is you're born into one of the other realms, like form realms or something like that. And so you gradually head upstream towards the highest pure abode. So if you're born into a viha and you don't finish it then, then you go to a tapa and you don't finish it then. So you then go up to a sudasa, you don't finish it then. Then you go up to sudasi, you don't finish it then. Then you go up to akimita. So we've now come to the end of part two on how to develop the seven factors of enlightenment in this progressive and connected way. So let's end our session with gratitude to the Buddha for these amazing teachings. We can share the merit with all sentient beings. May all beings be happy and well. May all beings be free from suffering. Blessings of the Triple Gem. Wishing you all well. Teruan Saranai.